This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Our scripture reading tonight comes from 1 Samuel. We'll be starting in chapter 9 and reading into chapter 10 through verse 16. A bit of a longer passage, but it fits together. Tells of one particular event. First Samuel nine one through ten sixteen. Hear now the reading of God's word. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you. And arise, go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. And he passed through the land of the Benjaminites, but he did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now. There is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to this city, because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore go up, for about this time you will find him. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel. 
that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjaminite, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall, and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about thirty persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day, that Samuel called to Saul on top of the house, saying, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, But you stand here a while, that I may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found. Now your father has ceased caring about the donkey and is worrying about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, you shall come to the hill of God, where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you have come there to the city, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you, to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them. 
And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? So he said to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, we pray that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would see this tale of the history of your people, this tale of a king that you raised up, most of all, but even in this story, that we would see Christ, who is our true prophet and priest and king forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine if somehow, some way, for some reason, some glitch in the law or something of the sort, you had, all by yourself, as one person, the opportunity to pick the next president of the United States. For whatever reason, the populace of the country or your party or however it is decided, they decide they so value your opinion that you get to make the call. Maybe a name comes to mind. But you would probably want to make such a decision very carefully. Even if you have a name in mind, you'd want to do some careful vetting, make sure you've got the best person for the job. You'd probably want to look for some certain qualities. You'd probably want someone who demonstrates the ability to make good decisions under pressure. You'd probably want someone with good character, a good reputation. You'd probably want someone who looks the part, and can communicate competently in front of the camera. You'd want to make sure someone has the right, it, the right views on the hot-button issues of the day and will properly use the power of the government towards the right agenda. You might want someone with more particular expertise, maybe someone who is a master of economics or someone with military experience. When we looked previously at 1 Samuel chapter 8 a few weeks ago, we looked at Israel's request for a king. There were certain things that they wanted. They wanted a king to judge them. They wanted a king to administer justice. Samuel's sons, remember, in their attempt to succeed Samuel, had perverted justice. So there was a certain right desire to return to the proper administration of justice. They also wanted a king who would fight their battles for them. Now, in doing this, they abandoned confidence in God and in his providence in raising up the leaders that he wanted for them in his timing and God fighting their battles for them as he had through their history done. Remember, it was only back in chapter 7 where God thundered against the Philistines and gave Israel a great victory over them. In chapter 8, the people rejected God's lordship, his kingship over them, and demanded a king to judge them like the nations. 
But in doing this, they betrayed their real intentions. They wanted a king like the nations because rather than being God's holy and particular and set-apart people, they wanted to be like the nations. So God grants them the kind of king they have requested in the form of this man, Saul. Now, early on, Saul gets off to a promising start. He's not perfect, but he seems okay. He seems pretty decent. Would almost seem like all the warnings and curses of the previous chapter about the horrible things that would happen to Israel because of its king might be withheld. But this is only temporary. That difficulty and that sorrow is still coming. But for now, we will witness the rise, and even in many ways, a good and promising rise of King Saul. So in our text tonight, we will look at three parts. We will look at this account in three parts. First, we look at the assessment of Saul, which is in the first ten verses of chapter 9. What kind of person is he? What does he care about? What is he up to? Where does he come from? Then second, we see the arrival of Saul. God orchestrates certain events to bring Saul where he needs to be. We see this in verses 11 through 25 of chapter 9. And third and finally, we see the anointing of Saul. This is from verse 26 of chapter 9 to the end of the passage, chapter 10, verse 16. So again, we have the assessment, arrival, and anointing of Saul. So first, we look at the assessment of Saul in these first 10 verses of chapter 9. The first thing we learn about Saul is his pedigree. In monarchical nations, nations with royalty, the lineage of the king is very important. But we learn of several generations of Saul's family. And we learn that Saul's father, Kish, was a man of power, or other translations say that he was a man of wealth. Either way, he's a person of good standing, a person of some nobility. Now, the introduction of Saul marks a major structural transition in the book of 1 Samuel. You can remember all the way back to the beginning, 1 Samuel begins in chapter 1 with this line, there was a certain man, going on to describe Elkanah, the father of Samuel. And then the subsequent chapters deal primarily with the life and times of Samuel. Now, Samuel's still going to be around for a while. Until He doesn't die until chapter 25 of the book, but he is no longer the main character in the story. Here in chapter 9, we have the introduction of another man. Soon there will be the introduction of David, and then there will be the conflict between David and Saul that will play out through the rest of the book. But for now, the spotlight is being firmly pivoted and set on this young man, Saul. He is from an important family, a rich family, a noble family. We find out that he's good-looking. He's prototypically tall and handsome. He looks the part. Like, if you want a king that commands respect by appearances, this is the guy. I asked you before who you would handpick to be your president. If you were in Israel and you were going to handpick someone to be king, at least strictly on appearances, Saul would be a strong contender. He would be on the short list. He stands out. Never mind his name, Saul. 
which itself means the one who is asked for. Israel asked for a king. Here's a guy who looks the part, even has the noble lineage and the name to boot. If you want a king like the kings of the nations, this is as close as you're going to get. Well, when we meet Saul, he is looking for his father's donkeys. A simple enough and mundane occurrence. As with any animals, donkeys can escape. They can wander off. They end up going where they shouldn't go. And donkeys were important animals to have, especially in that day. They were workers. They're haulers. They're, they do a lot of the manual labor tasks. They didn't have tractors in the like back then, so donkeys would pick up a lot of that work. And so losing donkeys would be an important impairment of one's work and life. So Saul and this unnamed servant take a journey to find these donkeys. This seems to indicate some good moral character in Saul. A problem has arisen for his father. His father asks him to help solve the problem, and Saul obeys. Now this journey turns into quite a long trip. We don't know the exact places that all of these place names describe, but we know that it takes Saul and the servant pretty far from home. In fact, later in verse 20, it says they were ended up being three days' journey from their home, from where they started, and they hadn't found the donkeys. So while Saul is doing right by his father and trying to find the donkeys, he's not having success. It's not going well. They've been gone long enough that in verse 5, Saul starts to think that his father's just going to be worried about them. That's a valid concern. Just as Saul honored his father by attempting to do the task his father gave him to do, he does not want to cause his father to be distressed by worrying about him. But this journey is about to take a critical and providential turn. While the events that have brought Saul here might seem mundane and unimportant, the retrieval of these lost animals, God has orchestrated these events in his providence to put Saul in the right place at the right time for his purposes. While the people's request for a king stems from wickedness, even that is not outside of God's plan or his providence. God purposes to put Saul on the throne and orchestrates events so that this will come to pass. And Saul will end up being an evil and disappointing king, but it was no accident or coincidence or mistake that he was in that position. Saul could have gone anywhere to look for the donkeys. Since donkeys, when they run, they could go just about anywhere. But Saul and his servant just so happened to come to the land of Zuth, where Samuel is. Specifically, they probably end up at Ramah, the hometown of Samuel, that we have seen before, where Samuel maintains his home and worships God. And since they've come to Samuel's area, the servant has an idea. Rather than turn back like Saul wants to do, the servant suggests that they go talk to the prophet. Maybe he can give them some guidance on how to find the donkeys. But Saul is hesitant. Maybe we start to see here some of the timidity and cowardice that will later be quite problematic for Saul in his reign. Saul protests initially on the grounds that they have no gift to bring. Apparently it was a custom at this time when 
one sought the advice of the prophet to bring a gift. But this was not something that had to be done. Maybe it was something of a concern for status. I'm from a rich family. I'm from a noble family. Do I, do I really want to come to the prophet without anything to give him? It may also be that when we look at this in light of what comes later with Saul, that he has a reluctance to engage with the things of God and the people of God. Now also note that it is Saul's servant who seems to be calling the shots here. And then Saul goes along with it. He eventually acquiesces. Saul is not leading. Saul is not commanding with authority and with respect. We see in verse 10 that Saul agrees to come with the prophet. Now, it is not to say that Saul should not have gone to the prophet. It's never a bad thing or a wrong thing to seek guidance from the Lord. And in fact, God, again, in his providence, has a very specific purpose in bringing Saul to the prophet. But what this shows is that Saul is hesitant to seek the Lord's will, but he is also unable and unwilling to lead. So we have here something of a mixed picture of Saul so far. On the one hand, we do see potential. He looks the part. He has the pedigree. He's doing his father's work. But on the other hand, there's cause for doubt. He's not doing his father's work particularly well or successfully. He can't find the donkeys after three days. And he's letting his servant lead while he follows. And he is slow, he is hesitant to seek the Lord. So for now, the jury is still out on Saul. But after having looked at this initial assessment of Saul, we now turn to our second point, the arrival of Saul in verses 11 through 27. Saul and his associate, they come to the city and they're directed to where Samuel will be. He's going up to a high place to offer a sacrifice. Now, as the name indicates, high places were high. They were usually up on top of some hill or some other prominent place near a city. Now, usually in the Old Testament, when you read and hear about high places, that's a bad thing. They're associated with idolatry. But prior to the construction of the temple, which was to be the place where God's people were to worship him and sacrifice to them, there was true and acceptable worship of God that was done on high places. You see this, for instance, again in 1 Kings chapter 3. So Samuel is on his way out to make a sacrifice at this high place. Now there may be a bit of foreshadowing here. Here we see the people in verse 13 waiting for Samuel to come and make a sacrifice before they partake of the feast. Later on, part of Saul's downfall will be that he will not wait for Samuel to come make a sacrifice. He will do it himself, causing God to reject him as king. Now we learn in verses 15 and 16 that Samuel had the previous day had a vision that someone would come to him from the tribe of Benjamin. And Samuel was to anoint him to be the prince, to be the ruler over Israel. And this man was to save them from the Philistines. We see now that the Philistines have once again come to trouble the people of Israel. There is a sense in which God will, despite the previous curses regarding a king, deliver the people from their enemies by their king. 
Although they forsake God and God chastens and disciplines his people, he has not forsaken them. We see God's grace despite Israel's hard heartedness. Now, while Saul would very much fit the description of the one who was supposed to come and be anointed that Samuel was foretold about, God makes it clear to Samuel, makes it explicit that this is the one he is looking for. He is the one who will rule over Israel. But Saul does not even know that he has found Samuel. He asks Samuel where the seer, where the prophet is. It might be a little surprising that Saul does not know Samuel. For Samuel has traveled Israel, judging the nation for decades now. Again, is this perhaps demonstrating a reluctance by Saul to engage with God's people? Samuel answers Saul that he is the seer, and that Saul should go before him to the high place. That tomorrow he will tell Saul what is on Saul's mind, or what is, yeah, what is on his heart. Now we would think at this point that that would be, well, the business of the donkeys, because that's what he's there for. But then Samuel right away tells him about the donkeys. That part is solved quickly. The donkeys have already been found. They've already gone back home. So there must be more to what Samuel is to tell him. Samuel then asks Saul this rhetorical question. And for whom is all that is... And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your father's house? Now this makes sense in light of what Samuel said in the last chapter about what the king would do. He would accumulate wealth and people and armies and power. But Saul doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that yet. He doesn't understand why Samuel was speaking to him this way. Saul has been seemingly hiding under a rock somewhere while all these developments regarding Samuel and the coming kingship have been taken shape. But Samuel then proceeds to show Saul great honor, gives him a place at the head of the table of the feast, at the high place, and he gives him the choicest portions of the meats, gives him the leg. Saul is getting the kingly treatments, though he does not yet know why. But after the feast, they return to the city, and Samuel prepares Saul a place on the roof of his house where Saul will spend the night. This is probably all a little strange and perplexing for Saul. He's probably thinking, I came here to find some donkeys. Suddenly I'm staying at the prophet's house, I didn't even have a good gift to give him, and he's being very nice to me. He's gave me these choice portions of the feast. He's showing me all this care and hospitality. But Saul does not yet see this work of God. He doesn't see God's providence in this. God willed for Saul to be in this place at this time so that Saul might be set aside and set apart for his purposes. And so after the assessment of Saul and this providential arrival of Saul, we now come to our third and final point, the anointing of Saul. In verse 26, Saul was awakened the next morning by Samuel, who will send him on his way. Now this servant is still with Saul, and Samuel asks him to send the servant on. He wants to speak to Saul privately. And specifically, Samuel is about to give Saul the prophetic word of the Lord. 
Now, once the servant is gone, Samuel takes out his flask of oil and he anoints oil. He pours it out and he kisses him and he tells Saul what this is all about. He tells him that the Lord has anointed him to be prince over Israel. And not only this, but he will save Israel from her enemies. Now, lest Saul be disinclined to believe this, Samuel tells him that he will receive several signs that this is about to pass. First, he would pass by the tomb of Rachel, the tomb of Jacob's wife, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, and there he would meet two men. They would report to him that the donkeys are found and that Saul's father is worried about him. Simple enough. Now this place where he would meet them, Rachel's tomb, that is near Bethlehem, the city of David, where Jesus would one day be born. The second sign carried a bit more significance. Saul will go on from there and he will find three men on their way to Bethel to make an offering to God. They'll have three goats, three loaves of bread, and some wine. Now, given that these men are going to offer these things to the Lord, that means that these items are holy. They are set apart. They are consecrated to the Lord. And yet some of that bread will be given to Saul. Well, what does that mean? If something was set apart for offering to God, only those set apart by God could eat it. So, for instance, of the sacrifices, certain portions could only be eaten in the holy place by the priests. By being allowed to partake of holy bread, it is shown that Saul is anointed. He is set apart for this purpose. It also, in a certain limited capacity, allows Saul to take a part of some priestly activity, a priestly blessing. Now, a similar episode, rather ironically, comes later in the life of David in 1 Samuel 21. It is ironic because by that point, David has been anointed king and is fleeing from Saul. David comes to the tabernacle when he is hungry. After a bit of deception, David is allowed to eat the holy bread that belonged to the priests. For most people, this would be an infraction. This would be a problem. But the Lord's anointed one is allowed to eat his holy food. This episode with David was later mentioned by Jesus in Mark chapter 2, when the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. For one, the Pharisees had attached much legalism and man-made regulations to the Sabbath. It went far beyond what God actually required. But Jesus is also the greater Saul and the greater David the anointed one, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords and the Holy One of Israel. So we see in this second sign to Saul a confirmation of Saul's own anointing, his own set-apartness, but also a foreshadowing of greater things to come. Now the third sign, which is seen in verse 5 and 6, is that Saul will encounter a group of prophets at a place called the Hill of God. When he does, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him and he will prophesy. This is a supernatural sign, a supernatural confirmation of God's anointing upon Saul. But this, too, in a certain way, paints Saul as a type of Christ's threefold office. He has been anointed to be king, he will share in the food of a priest, and he will prophesy 
as a prophet. Now this also declares that Saul is to reign under the authority of God's word, since these prophets are the messengers of God's word to the people. After these signs come to pass, Samuel tells Saul that he is to go down to Gilgal and wait seven days, after which Samuel will come and make sacrifices and show Saul what he is to do. And just as Samuel prophesies, all of these signs come to pass. We get in verses 9 through 13 the particular account of Saul among the prophets. It happens as Samuel said, the spirit rushes upon Saul and he starts prophesying. He starts declaring the word of the Lord. But it produces a fascinating reaction from the people who knew Saul. Might also give us another sign of trouble to come with Saul. See, the people who knew Saul think that such spirit-led and God-centered behavior by Saul is unusual. It's not like him. It's not the sort of thing he normally does. They ask, what has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? To put it another way, they're basically asking, who is this guy? This is no Saul that we would recognize. There's a certain condescension a certain mocking to it. And the response of the other man also is informative. And who is their father? Apparently such behavior, this participating in the things of God, is not only not characteristic of Saul, but not of his family either. The house of Kish was not a place where it would be thought that a man of God would come from. In fact, this derision becomes a proverb, a popular saying. It comes back again throughout 1 Samuel. Is Saul also among the prophets? Think of it ironically. Basically, if Saul's a prophet, anyone can be a prophet. Because Saul really isn't prophet material. Now, this is not to say that God cannot use whom he wants. And God does this work through Saul here despite him. But for the anointed king, this is a troubling indication. We get yet another troubling indication of what happens when Saul goes back home. Verse 14 of chapter 10, we see that Saul's uncle came to him and, and asked Saul where he had gone. Now you would think if you went somewhere and got anointed king, when you got home you'd probably want to share this information with your family and close friends. But Saul only tells his uncle that Samuel told, it, told them that the donkeys would be found. He doesn't say anything about being king or these signs from God or any of this. How strange. If I were for some odd reason to be elected the governor of South Dakota, and if I went back to my, visit my family in Wyoming, it would be really weird if I went and did not mention that to them. What we're seeing here in Saul is a problem that manifests itself in his future. Saul is not a man of faith. He does not have care or confidence in God's word. He is a coward. He does not believe that what God has said will come to pass. And even if it does, he does not believe that it comes from God's hand. So, 
we have seen the arrival of King Saul. On the surface, he's everything Israel could have wanted in a king. He's handsome, he's rich, he's from an important family. But remember, Israel is getting a king in judgment. And Saul has a problem that is much more fundamental than any of the good qualities that people would think he possesses. He lacks faith in his God. This will lead to sorrow and ruin, not only for him, but for his nation. We look at this and we might think it foolish and tragic. After all that Saul has seen and experienced in this text, why would he not trust God? But how much does God do for us? How much has God done for us? Yet we often doubt him. We disobey him. We do not live confidently in his word. And so today, tonight, that question is once again set before us. Do we believe in God's word? Do we rest confidently in God's word? Do we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the true and perfect prophet, priest, and king who lived the perfect life we could not, died to pay the penalty for our sins, and as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, was raised from the dead. The Bible says that whoever believes in Jesus will have everlasting life, but whoever does not believe shall not see life. See, our text tonight is ultimately pointing us to Christ, is pointing us to this true prophet, priest, and king. It's about something way more important than kings and kingdoms in this world. This is about a kingdom that will never end and a life that will never end, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. Are you a part of that kingdom? Do you have faith in God's word? Do you trust in God's promises? Do you believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ? And will you share in his kingdom? Or as Saul before, will you reject God, go your own way, and into your own destruction? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you what it teaches us as we see in Saul, a faulty king, uh, who in some ways foreshadows a prophet, a priest, and a king, but is himself so fallen and so far away. I pray that you would illuminate to our hearts and write on our hearts the person and work of our true prophet, priest, and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would trust in him, that we would rest confidently upon his word, and that we would live lives of love and service and obedience to him, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.